Greetings and welcome to the audio etheric transmission The Tales of Sage and Savant, a Twin Star production. This broadcast is brought to you on the first of each month from the Twin Star Studios in sunny Southern California. Our tale stars Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Mix Abigail Entwistle, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. It is our pleasure to bring you the second installment in our special double episode for the holiday season. The special program, entitled Circus of Dreams, is sponsored by Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing and features the music of the Nathaniel Johnstone Band. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. Come with me and conquer time. Transmigration journeys expand your mind. Last we saw our heroes, they had recovered from the cholera to discover they had joined the circus. To be more specific, they had inhabited the bodies of a husband and wife team. Savant is a marksman with rifle, pistol, knives, and bow and arrows. Sage is his shapely and enthusiastic target. As you might imagine, this has caused some level of consternation. There have been many distressingly public rows, not the least of which involved Sage moving into separate quarters. The doctor claimed to need personal space as she was unused to sharing a bed with a man. In reality, she needed the space to overcome the lusts of this body. It is obvious to this narrator that these bodies possess keen sexual appetites, placing our heroes at disadvantage when attempting to work. pinned me. I am being careful, Petra. The object is for me to place the knives as close to your body as possible for dramatic effect. If you wish to avoid getting stuck, you really must stop all the wiggling and heaving bosoms. My bosoms are heaving because I'm hyperventilating. You try standing still, wearing nothing but a scrap of spangled satin and a pair of fishnet tights, whilst cocking a leg suggestively, sticking out your chest, all while you stare down the concourse towards a madman preparing to throw viciously sharp knives at you and keep from having heaving breasts. Yes, I... I know, but you've watched me practice. I'm certain I've gained the mastery of aim needed to rehearse the act. After all, tomorrow we have to perform it for real. I haven't even begun to rehearse with the firearms Fire yet. Firearms? Yes. Uh, didn't I tell you? Last night, I did as you suggested and plied Mule Jenny with alcohol and romantic attention to get her to describe the full extent of our act. 
which, by the way, is a low to which I will never stoop again. It is immoral to take advantage of a young girl like that. The mere fact that she was emboldened and knew by my attentions sickens me. I am sorry. It was entirely inappropriate for me to suggest it, but I was desperate to know what we were facing. It would be easier to hold off the ardor of that particular filly if you'd move back into the marital bed. You know as well as I, Erasmus, why I cannot do that. We are scholars, and the appetites of the body should not be allowed to overwhelm our senses. You are correct, however. We mustn't lose sight of ourselves and our values, no matter the provocation. Yes. Well, I'm glad we're in agreement about young Jenny, at least. So, shall I tell you what I found out last night? Can you guess the full scope of our act and what the dramatic conclusion is? You shooting an apple off my head whilst the band plays the William Tell <laughs> overture? No. Better. After the knife throwing in the bow and arrow display, for the final, firearms. This is a full ring act entitled Gunpowder Gallant. You are tied to a broken wagon wheel and the clowns portray vicious red Indians intent on doing you harm. First, I throw the knives to obtain your release. Then, as the clowns jump and cavort about, I use bow and arrows to shoot strategically thrown targets. As each target falls, so too does one of your attackers. When I have eliminated them all, you mount my horse, stand in the saddle, and gallop around the ring holding up various targets whilst I shoot them from a small stand in the center using a succession of firearms. In the end, you vault off the horse and flip into my arms for a dramatic kiss. That is impossible. I can't ride and you can't shoot. Haven't you noticed, Petra, how athletic the body you're occupying uh, well, is? yes, but... No buts, Petra. Your physical form is in peak shape. This body knows what to do. Our challenge is to stop thinking problems for ourselves. Have you read the teachings of Zen Buddhism? Oh, briefly, years ago. I do not see the benefit in emptying my mind. Thoughts are too precious to waste. Uh, Zen does not teach you to destroy thought, Petra. Simply to not let our thoughts, worries, and preoccupations control us. In this case, if you would clear away the worries of Petra Sage and allow the natural grace and practice showmanship of Hildy's body to take precedence, then you might find you're entirely capable of many things, including trick writing. Now, I really must practice the bow and arrow bit. And so they passed their last day on the riverboat as they steamed towards Arrow Rock and disembarkation. As the paddle wheeler approached the dock, the circus troupe broke into a flurry of activity in preparation. The roustabouts were pulling crates next to the gangway, Performers were packing trunks and adding them to the pile. The equestrian manager, Hiram Marks, issued the call for all performers to assemble in the salon where he would make announcements and hand out assignments for the evening. Sage and Savant joined the press of people streaming up the stairs into the center of the ship. All right, ladies and gents, listen up. Mr. C has gone ahead to prepare the Burg of Arrow Rock for a parade tonight to drum up business for a matinee showing on the morrow. Because of this, the roustabouts will offload your trunks while all performers participate in the parade. I want Gus and half your boys to lead off and warm up the crowd, followed by the band. Play something jaunty, boys. Then Raoul and the aerialists and tumblers 
Mule Jenny and two of your mules. Now then, let's have Rosa in our sideshow troupe. Hey, I don't like that. Folks will assume I'm part of the sideshow if I'm separated out from the rest of the equestrians. No, hush up, Jenny. Parade order is determined by the unload order, and your mules are closest to the gangway. Now, as I was saying, after the sideshow, we'll have Chester and the big cats, followed by the rest of the equestrian gang. Sasha and Tasha, let's have you two standing in the saddle. And finally, Tubbs and Hildy. Tubbs, let's have you mounted and Hildy on the wheel in the wagon so you can demonstrate just a hint of your knife skills. The other half of the clowns will bring up the rear and paper the locals with handbills for our performance. Are there any questions? Yeah, boss. Uh, when are we going to get a supper amidst all this folderol? Ah, oh, don't you worry, Gus. Cookie will be setting up the mess tent, and you'll get your supper right after the parade. Anyone else? Anything in particular about what we should wear? Full parade uniforms for all, Hildy. You know that. Feathers and spangles and paints. That's what brings the punters in. Thank you, Mr. Marks. What's gotten into you, Hildy? You know to call me Hiram. Let's not lose track of business now. If I want anything to change from normal routine, I'll tell you. That would be great if we knew what normal routine was. We're just going to have to figure it out. I'll talk to Rosa about costumes. All right, gang. Finish up your packing tasks and assemble at the end of the pier immediately after docking. Gus, send one of the boys for the handbills. Look lively now. Tubbs, would you be so kind as to help me get treacle and licorice down the pier? You know how skittish those mules are on docks. They just can't stand the hollow sound of their hooves echoing over the water. Well, I, I was going to help Hildy. Oh, Hildy won't mind, will you, Hildy? After all, the roustabouts will bring out the cart, and Butterscotch is just the sweetest horse. Why, even an imbecile could lead him down the docks. I am not an imbecile. Of course you aren't, Hildy. Whatever would you think such a thing? Do you see, Tubbs? Hilly said she can manage butterscotch without you. I don't think that is quite what she was meaning to say. Thank you for lending me your man, Hildy. See you in the parade. And without waiting to see the reaction, the little vixen attaches herself to the professor's arm like a limpet and drags him away. Is everything all right with you, Hildy? You've been a little off since your sickness. What do you mean, off? Mule Jenny, for one thing. I've never known you to suffer nonsense like that from the girl. If you don't watch out, she'll steal away your man. My man? He cannot be stolen. I don't own him. Well, suit yourself. But I don't want our show please act broken up because of domestic troubles. So for the sake of the act, keep an eye on that man. Make sure he maintains a healthy distance from the type of temptation being peddled by young Jenny. The concern of the manager has rattled our doctor more than she would care to admit. As she makes her way down the stairs to prepare for docking, she considers the parameters of fidelity for transmigrationists. If the professor in the body of Tubbs has congress with the girl, is it infidelity? Sage is not Hildy, Erasmus is not Tubbs, so there is no injury to Sage if Tubbs's body is unfaithful. On the other hand, Erasmus is her oldest and closest friend, and given time, there might be more between them. 
Would he be committing an infidelity against her should he choose comfort in the girl's arms? Especially since Sage herself expressly stated that their married host bodies did not create an automatic condition for marital congress between the travelers. It is a confusing tangle, and so we will leave the doctor to her worries and pause for a short musical break. And now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the talented melodical expressions of the Nathaniel Johnstone Band. Shiny skull, tiny skull, little trophy mine Awful skull, monster skull, gleams in daylight shine Once the monster menaced from beneath my lovely's bed With claws and teeth I've slain the beast for a trophy I took its head I held aloft my prize in righteous glory glee. The shadows and shapes all watched agape, then turned as one to flee. Conquest mine Shiny skull, tiny skull Little trophy mine Awful skull, monster skull Gleams in daylight shine Now, back to our story. When we left our friends, they were struggling with the marital mess they inherited from their host bodies. But that moral conundrum has been set aside in the excitement of the circus parade. The doctor is mounted, in all her pulchritudinous glory, on a great spangled wheel carried forth in a flat-bedded cart pulled by two of Jenny's mules. The wheel itself is suspended from a stand and mounted by a bearings allowing it to spin so that Petra's head is now up, now down, her arms and legs braced outwards like Gray's famous anatomy of man. Twenty paces back, Erasmus sits astride a great Palomino stallion. Over his dark vest and red silk shirt, he has added a magnificent fringed coat, the strands of which sway dramatically each time he flings a knife at the rapidly spinning form of his partner. Six knives fly. Six knives sink home into the wheel, mere inches from flesh. Then, a small denim-clad boy flips the lever that stops the spinning, and as soon as Petra is arranged suitably upright, pulls free the knives and jumps off the cart to run them back to the professor. 
In between the vertigo-inducing demonstrations of knife-throwing skill, our heroes wave to the cheering crowd and smile until their cheeks cramp. The crowd seems quite impressed. Don't let it go to your head. I'm quite sure they are as excited by my bare legs as they are by your knife skills. (laughs) Ah, Petra, how you keep me humble. After the excitement of the parade, the hustle of the camp seems calm for our transmigrationists. The roustabouts have raised the big top and a series of smaller tents that will serve as concessions, sideshow, and housing for the performers for the next week. The final setup will continue through the night and into the morning, ending with the adorning of the grounds with banners and flags, the popping of corn, and rope line footpaths. For now, though, it is enough to get costume trunks and sleeping cots settled and then adjourn to the mess tent for dinner. The chatter in the tent is lively and full of excitement. After nine days on the boat, three to make the trip and six quarantined thanks to the cholera, it is a great relief to be on terra firma. And then he says, he says, as straight as a judge, says he, because Tuesday's your day in the barrel. That was a bit off color. (laughs) I find it refreshing. These people do not spend time acting according to frivolous social niceties or trying to prove superiority. Did I ever tell you about time I was mistaken for the week on debris at the university? I was younger and still slender in boyish manner. And when my beard first came in, it was quite soft and winsome in a classical sort of way. Uh, I was quite proud of it and would oil it and curl it to fine effect. Well, I was taking a stroll by the strand and a very pretty young woman approached me and in the most uh, Patrickin of tones demand that I make honest woman of her. <laughs> <laughs> now that would have been a trick. <laughs> I've paid for that trick. All right, boys, settle down. It isn't what you think. So I play along right to see what she was on about. And if I am honest, she was quite comely. So I follow her down to the strand over the Savoy and onto university grounds. The entire way she is chattering about some fork or other and the need to uh, shut up a most irritating creature. At this point, I am imagining having to butcher pig with fork. I've done that. It ain't easy. (laughs) (laughs) So, she dragged me up quad. Mind you, I've never been to university before, so I am... Well, and truly impressed by all the tall white buildings, all columns and such. The girl keeps, we can't this, we can't that. So I do my best to act, um, how you say, uh, nonchalant as she pulled me into great marble hall bristling with statues and ferns. Up the stairs we climb on carpet softer than bed until we enter an antechamber full of serious-looking students in black robes and tasseled caps. The girl who has my elbow in vice tows me in front of imposing group of young bucks and announces, Ernest, Clive, I have brought the Wicked Debris, as I said I would. Wicked. 
she says to me, so I have no doubt I've been mistaken for Dandy. We got. Tell these boys what you explained to me about Hume's folk. Now, I, I have no idea who Hume was, nor why his folk was so damn important. But even in my youth, I know you do not leave a young lady in lurch. <laughs> so what did you say, Rosa? I say... Hume is correct, gentlemen. You can use fork as spoon if you use it rapidly enough. <laughs> but that is not the meaning of Hume's fork at all. He was investigating the dichotomy between sophistry and knowledge derived from experience. You see, Hume held that genuine knowledge must either be directly traceable to objects, objects perceived in experience, or result from abstract reasoning about relations between ideas. Oh, Hildy. We had no idea you were a philosopher. Tubbs, did you teach your daughter to read? <laughs> no, he didn't teach me to read. Oh, now, Hildy, no reason to get all riled up. Gus didn't mean anything by it, did you, Gus? Uh, of course not, Hildy. We all know just how smart you are. I wouldn't say she was smart. Uh, Hildy may not be well-schooled, but she looks smart and... It's a crack performer. That's all that is required here, isn't it, boys? <laughs> the doctor's hackles are up, but as usual, Erasmus manages to smooth them before she does something intemperate. The evening winds down, and our pair take a stroll before bed to talk over the specifics of the next day's performance. So... I finish off the Red Indians by shooting down the targets thrown by the Braves, and then taking out Gus in the Chief's bonnet whilst you go and get mounted onto Butterscotch. Oh, I really wish I didn't have to do the horseback part. Oh, you'll be okay. Butterscotch is a peach, and the rest is just balance and flair, which you have in abundance. My only worry is how you will carry and present all the targets. The act calls for 20 of them. That's nothing to worry about. One of the roustabouts brought me the box of targets earlier. They're rather ingenious little things. They're made of silk, and each of them is bounded by a small coiled wire. When you grab them by the sides and twist, they collapse into small rounds about a quarter of the size of the hole. Evidently, I store them in the swath of fabric that girdles my hips. When I fling them out of concealment, they pop to full size. With a rather specific flick of the wrist, they'll seemingly appear out of thin air. Oh, that explains what Jenny was on about. Oh? Well, she said that you could do this maneuver so fast it would appear and shot before the target was in place. Evidently, it's quite a crowd pleaser. I was having a hard time picturing how wooden targets could be positioned so fast. Erasmus, I just had a terrible thought. What if you miss and hit someone in the audience? Or what if I hold a target at a bad angle and the bullet goes through it and into the body of some poor little kid who just wanted an exciting day at the circus? You don't have to worry about that, pet. Firstly, you're to hold all the targets very high. That's why you're standing in the saddle as Butterscotch gallops around the ring. Second of all, evidently the powder load in these bullets has been specifically calibrated to shorten the trajectory. As long as you stay four feet inside the edge of the ring, I'll hit the target and the bullet will fall spent to the dirt. I still wish there was a chance for us to practice this before the show. I asked, but it seems Hiram has a strict policy against exercising the animals on show day. He does not wish them to be tired or lazy in actual performance, so we are not allowed to run them out the day of. I will get a chance to practice with the firearms, though, so I'll know what's what. 
The lack of practice means there is nothing for it the next day but to dress, apply the proper grease paint, and hope. And speaking of grease paint, the professor looks quite startling and handsome with his eyes ringed with coal. I often wonder why it wasn't until the 22nd century that men fully embraced the refining effects of cosmetics. The doctor passed a fitful night on her cot, but with Rose's help applying cosmetics and hot-tonguing her hair into a mass of curls, she looks stunning as she steps out of the girl's sleeping tent and onto the midway. You are a sight. I can see why this Tubbs fellow made you his bride. Can't see why on earth he would jilt you with Mule Jenny. <laughs> You're just saying that because this body is so young <laughs> and lush. You should know by now that I see your soul shining through, no matter what form you're in. It is your life spark that animates this body and gives it true beauty. Though the professor's words are sweet and he means well, they have an unintended consequence. Mule Jenny has overheard them and taken offense. Like many a jilted lover in the past, her fury burns white-hot, and she immediately plots her revenge. The intemperate girl sneaks into the property's tent, where the props master keeps all show props such as throwing knives, guns, and gunpowder-shy bullets arrayed on tables for easy access by performers. I'll show him. He worships her soul so much. Well, he can just worship it for eternity in paradise. Oh, hi, Jenny. What can I do you for? Oh, hey, Joe. I was sent to relieve you so as you can get your breakfast. Cookie normally brings that by on show mornings, once all the performers have eaten. Yeah, well, today they decided that the roustabouts can eat like civilized people. I don't know why. Well, you don't have to tell me twice. I'll never turn down early breakfast. So, everything is prepped and ready, uh, just in case any of the performers stop by asking. All props are present, accounted for, and show ready. Got it. You can count on me, Joe. Enjoy your breakfast. Once the man is gone, Jenny hones in on the sharpshooter's props. I am not sure what she plans to do, but I know her plans are nefarious. Will she succeed in sabotaging the tools of the professor's performance? We'll find out after this quick word from our sponsor. Hello listeners, Eddie Louise here, head writer for the Tales of Sage and Savant. I read a lot, and when I pick up a book I am generally looking for more than distraction. I want a story that ignites my imagination and spurs my brain into action. I want just the kind of fiction published by our sponsor, Edge Publishing. Edge publishes thought-provoking full-length novels and anthologies of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Featuring works by established authors and emerging new voices, Edge is pleased to provide quality literary entertainment in both print and pixels. Books from Edge Publishing are available at your local bookstore and online for Kindle, Kobo, Nook, iTunes, and Google Play. You can view titles and find out about future releases at www.edgewebsite.com. Edge Publishing, when you want writing to spark your imagination. Yes, dear friends, you heard it here. Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing for books that target enjoyment. And now, back to our show. When we left our story, Mule Jenny, the stubborn girl, was attempting to sabotage the props used in the Sharpshooters Act. Will her actions imperil our doctor? 
We will find out when they do, listeners, because the show has started. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, mesdames and messieurs, welcome to the big top of any camp, Grand Southern Circus. Leave behind your cares and worries and prepare to enter a world of wonder, magic, laughter, and spectacle. This afternoon, for your edification and entertainment, our performers will reach for dazzling heights. As the ringmaster gestures dramatically skyward, an aerialist wearing spangled tights steps from the shadows that conceal him and onto the trapeze platform at the highest spot on the pole. He is muscular and handsome, and gives a jaunty wave as he unhooks the trapeze bar from the pole, takes a firm grip with both hands, and leaps off the platform. Ladies and gentlemen, this is very exciting. Look how easily he swings over the heads of the enrapt audience as if gravity has no claim on him. I have, of course, seen the historical records on circus performance, but reading about it is so very different than actually seeing it. If this is an indication of the excitement ahead, we are in for a most invigorating time. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, you will see acts of high-flying daring do as our aerialists fly far above your head. But that is not all we have in store for you to start your afternoon of wonder and excitement. I call into the ring the complete cast of the Grand Southern Circus. Let the show begin. Perhaps, dear listeners, you have seen the circus yourself. Perhaps you are not impressed by the costumes, the daring do, the sheer spectacle of it all. If that is the case, then I cannot help but wonder, what horrible event has shuddered your soul? What blackness obscures your vision? Because the circus is wondrous, loud, exuberant, and mystifying. It is bravery and athleticism, ingenuity and surprise. In short, as act follows act, I cannot help being swept away with the self-same excitement and joy evident on every upturned face in this big talk. Well, give it up, ladies and gentlemen, for Gus Simple Cloud Brigade. Have you ever laughed so hard? And now, we have a special treat for you, my friends. Snatched back from the jaws of cholera with eyesight keener than ever, I give you the remarkable sharpshooting skills of Tibble Duran and his lovely assistant, Hilde Hotpants Hoffman. The professor thunders into the ring riding butterscotch, wearing his dramatic fringed coat and a very large hat. The doctor is perched side saddle in front of him, her long and shapely legs draped over the horse's withers. 
The pair smiles with a matching glint, waving to the crowd as they make the circuit of the ring, the tail of their mount streaming behind like a banner. Life in the great American West can be hazardous to the uninitiated ladies and gentlemen, but Tybalt Duran has a bevy of skills to keep his ladies safe against the privations of the open prairies and the trackless wilderness beyond these shores. As the ringmaster delivers his patter, Erasmus pulls Butterscotch to a stop near the center platform, delivering Petra into the waiting arms of the ringmaster. Then he wheels away to meet a pioneer-style wagon driven into the ring by one of the equestrian team. Executing a very athletic leap, Erasmus jumps onto the driver's bench, neatly taking the reins as the other man slips from the seat and trots out of the ring, followed by a dutiful butterscotch. The West is full of dangers, ladies and gents, not the least of which is the pernicious Red Menace. Yes, the wild tribes of the trackless berries will fight to the death to keep the pioneers out. And they have no compunctions toward protecting women and children. As the ringmaster speaks, the entire 12-man troop of clowns runs into the ring. They have adorned themselves in a narrow parody of those people they call savages, all painted feathers and misapplied war paint. I must stop the action a moment, dear friends, to express my dismay on the cultural blindness and casual cruelty displayed by people of this time against the First Nations peoples. Oh, for the wisdom of a later age. Still, my job is to report things as I see them, so forgive me, I must go on. The ersatz Indians take hold of Hildy and strap her to the wagon wheel they have manhandled onto the center platform. Once again, Petra finds herself spread eagle and staring down the concourse towards her friend as he prepares to fling knives towards her. Only this time, her arms and legs are roped into place. She looks over at Erasmus with panic, but he smiles and shakes his head softly. He must have known about the ropes. The clowns set the wheel spinning, and Erasmus draws his first knife, takes careful aim, and releases it. His aim is true. The knife thunks into the board, inches from Petra's ankle, slicing away the ropes as neat as scissors cut hair. Petra, sensing what is called for, extends the leg, pointing her toes prettily. The crowd roars. As the spinning wheel begins to lose momentum and slow down, the professor throws again. Six other knives follow in close succession. Each knife flies true, slicing away the ropes and freeing the lovely limbs of Hildy until there is only one rope left, that which encircles her heaving breasts. The wheel stops spinning, bringing the doctor to an upright position. Erasmus pulls forward the final knife, but something causes him to frown. He transfers the blade to the other hand and scrubs his palm down the legs of his trousers as if trying to remove something sticky. He flexes his fingers a couple of times, transfers the knife back into his throwing hand, takes careful aim, and releases the blade. It tumbles end over end through the air, the throw obviously wobbly and uncertain. Time slows as we watch the deadly blade fly towards the tender breast of the maiden. And at the last minute, 
the blade seems to straighten, and regaining a true trajectory, it slides into place alongside the girl's ribs, slitting the rope and sinking into place in the board under her arm. Without missing a beat, our doctor steps away from her confinement and sweeps a curtsy towards the audience. Now, folks, wasn't that exciting? Why don't we let Hildy go catch her breath while Tiddle takes care of those pesky engines? What say you? Shall we give them a dose of their own medicine? Petra skips out of the ring as Erasmus whips the horses pulling the wagon back into a run, places the reins in his teeth, and takes up a bow. He knocks an arrow in place, loosing it towards one of the clowns who flings up a target and tumbles dramatically to the dirt as the arrow pierces the silken disc. That's how we do it, folks! One by one, as the wagon thunders around the ring, the clowns throw up their targets and plunge into hysterical pantomimed death. The crowd voices enthusiastic approval until the last clown, this one wearing the grand bonnet of a chieftain, makes a final stand on the central platform, throwing not one, not two, but three targets into the air, which the professor takes down with three rapidly fired arrows. I have to tell you, troublesome ethnic portrayal aside, this is quite exciting. Erasmus brings the wagon to a screeching halt at the center platform, vaulting neatly into a bow next to the ringmaster, and the crowd expresses their appreciation. Folks, how would you like to see Tibble Duran's markmanship with firearms? I did not think it was possible to feel more excited, and yet, dear friends, as Petra glides back into the ring on Butterscotch, standing in the saddle, and Erasmus pulls out a long rifle, I am affected with the same hushed quiet that has gripped our crowd. Thus far, all has felt dangerous, but not deadly. The sight of the Winchester has put a hush in the air, the glinting barrel and burnished stock. This is an instrument of death, and we know it. Petra sets Butterscotch into a canter around the edge of the ring, making small flourishes with her hands and smiling broadly as Erasmus cracks open the rifle in preparation of loading it. There is a moment of hesitation as he discovers the gun is already loaded, but he covers well as he removes the bullets in the chamber and replaces them with the ones from his pocket. Ladies and gentlemen, Tibble will first demonstrate his accuracy with a Winchester Centennial model. The self-same lever-action rifle used by the Texas Rangers and Theodore Roosevelt himself. Petra plucks a target from the fabric at her hips, flicks her wrist to open it, and holds it far out to the side. Erasmus takes careful aim, waiting for the horse and rider to reach that blank spot at the back of the tent, squeezes the trigger, and bang! Drills a hole straight through the middle of the target. As the act progresses, the pace increases until it almost seems as if we hear the shots before seeing the targets appear. The act passes in a blaze, and by the time our heroes have shared a dramatic kiss, taken their final bow, and left the tent, they are both drenched in sweat and full of a strange exultation. That 
was amazing. Is this what performers always feel after a performance? I don't know, but you're right. My spirits are quite high. And that is even after noticing that someone was trying to kill you. Trying to kill me? What do you mean? Oh, our props were tampered with. One of the knives was weighted with a small piece of metal attached with rubber cement. It made the throw go a bit wonky. That was the last knife, wasn't it? My God, Erasmus, you could have killed me. Well... It killed this body, certainly, but you would have been fine. <laughs> but why do you say that someone was trying to kill me? Maybe you just picked up the wrong knife. Well, that is what I thought, until it was time for the firearms. Joe the Propsmaster told me he always hands me the guns unloaded. I put the bullets in my pockets. Uh, this way there's no accidental using regular bullets rather than the low-powdered ones. Okay. Well, when I cracked the Winchester, it was already loaded. With full-charge bullets. So the bullet would have gone through the tent? I mean, you weren't aiming for me, but for the target. Yes, but a full-charge bullet would cause a different kickback. When Joe and I practiced this morning, he taught me how to compensate for the kick and keep my aim true. And if the gun had pulled high... The bullet might have struck you in the head, yes. The professor reaches up to push an errant curl from the doctor's brow. But who would do such a thing? Well, I think I know. Petra, I think it's time you set things straight and reclaimed your man, as it were. Uh, reclaim my man? Oh, for a genius, you can be especially dense when it comes to affairs of the heart. Mule Jenny needs to see you in my bed tonight. I need you in my bed tonight. And without waiting for permission, Erasmus sweeps Petra into his arms and strides boldly across the midway and into a private tent, conveniently waiting at the edge of the encampment. It is almost as if things had been arranged in advance. And so, with delightful thoughts of finding true love for the holidays, we will leave our story here. Will Sage and Savant enter a new phase of their relationship? Will Mule Jenny succeed in doing harm to the budding romance? Will Sage and Savant decide to run away and join the circus? We'll find out in the next episode of The Tales of Sage and Savant. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a twin star production starring Eddie Louise as Sage, Chip Michael as Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Abigail, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Soundtrack music, sound design, and audio engineering by Chip Michael. Special music in this episode was provided by the Nathaniel Johnstone Band. Check them out at nathanieljohnstone.com. We would like to extend our gratitude to this month's sponsor, Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. Episode 205B, Circus of Dreams, was written by Eddie Louise. Are you interested in the historical and scientific information we included in this episode? Like us on Facebook or check out our website, sageandsavant.com, to find the facts behind the fiction. The cast of Sage and Savant would like to wish you and yours a very happy holidays. And finally, as always, we urge you to remember that death is no barrier to science. Science.